baseball is a power sport. It's driven by power. So whether it's the actual speed of your swing and exit velocity that we're trying to achieve, or whether it's how fast we're throwing a baseball, the more force that we can put into the uh, that we can uh, put into the ground and then transfer through the rest of the body and then put out through whatever implement that we're using, whether it's a bat or a ball, the more likely we are to be able to actually exert power on those objects. Really, to break it down, the stronger we are, the more potential we have to produce power. Hey, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve, your source for the most up-to-date coaching strategies for player and coaching development. Jonathan Gellner here. I'm truly honored to have on the Arizona Performance Coordinator for the Cleveland Indians, Ryan Fair. Ryan and I discuss what player development looks like from a strength and conditioning standpoint, how and why to simplify what we do in the weight room, and what common problems he sees with young athletes. You're going to get a lot out of this one with Coach Ryan Fair. Hey, Ryan, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to, to, to uh, talk some shop with you today. Well, I'm extremely excited to talk some shop as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep this as brief as possible. Um, but but I definitely love sharing how, how I got into strength and conditioning and got into coaching because I think the path is a little bit different than most. Uh, when I graduated uh, high school, I had already decided that I didn't want to go on and play kind of the next level. Uh, it would have taken me out of state. And uh, I, I wanted to start co- uh, focusing on my coaching career and, and, and get my foot in the door there. And it just so happened that the, uh, the coaches that I had when I was playing baseball through high school, uh, my, my head coach uh, uh, left the school and they hired a new head coach. His name was Andy Lyon. And uh, they brought him in to, uh, to take on the baseball program at Deland High School. And one day I was working out right after I graduated. I was using the high school weight room and uh, was, was working out there. And uh, they brought in Coach Lyon through the weight room to give him a, a, an official tour and, and show him around. And uh, I introduced myself and said, hey, you know, I, I'd love to help in any way that I can. I'm uh, not thinking really much of it, but, but just wanted to offer my services. And uh, he said, well, would you like to throw uh, BP for our freshman team tomorrow? And, and keep in mind, I mean, I had literally just graduated probably just days before then. But I, I was like, uh, absolutely. And, and without even thinking about the fact that I'd never thrown BP in my life and I throw terrible cutters. So I was like, oh, that's probably not going to be the best BP. But that being said, I went out the next day through batting practice to the, to the freshman team. And uh, I never stopped the coaching since. Uh, probably been on a baseball field or in a weight room every single day uh, since then. So um, I spent four years uh, from that point on coaching year-round um, high school baseball. I uh, did the travel ball circuit a little bit, too, during the summer. So it was, it was really a year-round endeavor, doing it kind of mostly on a, on a volunteer basis, all the while going to school full-time. Um, I graduated from the University of Florida with a degree in exercise science or uh, exercise physiology. Uh, but during that time, uh, while I was going to the University of Florida, I did my degree completely online so that I could focus on coaching. Because I, I had a great gig there at the high school where I started getting more and more responsibility to, to run warm-ups, uh, develop the training program, which, looking back on it, was, was terrible, but it was still... Uh, my, my first experience is getting to coach in the weight room, um, and I got an opportunity to learn and, and, and grow as a coach in that sense. And then I also got to intern at Stetson University when they first started up their strength and conditioning program back in 2012. So I was the first intern they had, and because they only had the director there, uh, Bradley Loki at the time, and, and no other assistants, uh, by, by virtue of that situation, I got to coach actually every single day and a lot of times coach teams on my own at the Division One level. Uh, at, and at the time, I believe I was a college junior. So another great coaching opportunity for me. So I, I, I uh, didn't want to make the two hour trip up to Gainesville and, and study on campus. So I did my degree online to continue coaching at the same time. Uh, right at the end of my uh, undergrad, I, I did one last internship. Um, I did an internship with uh, the LA Dodgers, had the opportunity just before graduation to fly out um, and, and spend four or five months uh, with the Dodgers and which is an awesome opportunity. Got my foot in the door in uh, professional baseball. I came back home I did one more semester for my degree and was was uh, very blessed and fortunate to to have the opportunity to then take on a job full time with the L.A. Dodgers. So spent a year with uh, with the Dodgers uh, back in 2015, decided to move closer to home from that point because that had me out on the West Coast. And I, I'm originally uh, born and raised uh, in, in uh, central Florida. So I moved back home and, and took a job with the New York Mets where I was there for uh, under, under a season because uh, during my time there down in Port St. Lucie, I was offered the opportunity to start the strength and conditioning program at DeLand High School, which is my alma mater, um, and, and develop that program from the ground up. So I spent a year at DeLand High School before now taking uh, my current role with the Cleveland Indians as the uh, Arizona Performance Coordinator. 
So that's a, a brief rundown, hopefully somewhat brief, of, um, of how I got to where I am now and what kind of uh, how my career started in strength and conditioning and in baseball. You said that you didn't want to play past high school. So what made you decide to get into coaching? Like, what is what is your why? Yeah, definitely. That's that's a good question. Um, so I, I knew. So I love the training process. When I was a when I was a freshman in high school, I played baseball my whole whole life. Uh, from the time I was four until eighteen years old, that's the only sport I ever played. I you know I was an early sport specialized kid without even knowing it. I just never wanted to play another sport, and and that's you know baseball was my life. So uh, when I got to my freshman year of high school, I actually got cut from the JV team which was just, it was shocking to me. I, I could not believe I didn't make the team. And, you know, there was, there was a moment of, you know, well, maybe I'll play football or maybe I'll do something else. Um, but really after, after spending a couple of weeks and talking to my parents, realized, you know what, I, I just got to get to work. Like I, I got to get better. I, I can't give up here. So uh, I basically fell in love with the training process. I, I committed myself to, to working out, even though I didn't really know what I was doing. I still got a gym membership and went every single day. Um, I tried to get into the best shape that I possibly could. I ran and then I, uh, I went to baseball training facilities and threw every day, you know, the, basically what all the kids are doing now. Um, I learned that lesson, lesson the hard way. So, um, but I, I came to realize that whole, that whole process, um, and that obstacle that, you know, I, I love to train and, and as much as I loved being on the mound, I was okay with not necessarily, uh, competing again after high school, as long as I could. I could begin to work in the sport still and influence uh, other kids and basically get them to go through the same process that I went through, but maybe not necessarily do it the hard way. So if I could teach them the lessons of, yeah, it, it takes work and dedication and perseverance, um, commitment, uh, commitment to excellence and, and uh, things like that. If I could teach them that and make that kind of uh, impact on their baseball career, um, I, I definitely wanted to do that. And that, that was, you know, when I was 17 or 18. And then as I got into it, I, the, the why became more than just, Okay, let's develop them as as young baseball players. Let's and and try to show them work ethic. Let's just develop them as as young men, um, and and more of a young men and women. As as I got into uh, working at the high school level full time, um, it was just developing people, and that has become my why. So about you know eighteen or nineteen years old when I realized the impact that you can make on on some of the younger athletes and the difference you can make. That's that's where coaching really became less of a uh, less of a career, less of a lifestyle goal and, and more of a calling and, and a passion well and you've got a great story as well and you talked about seeing you wanted the, your players to see the commitment to excellence and you've got a great example through you from getting cut with the jv team in high school to being a part of a professional baseball organization and, and i guess now three professional baseball organizations that's a really cool story thanks i, I really appreciate it it's for me that's that's something that uh i take a lot of pride in because it I learned a lot of lessons in that way. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with being a professional baseball. I just, I look back and go, you know, I could have gone either way. I could have given up on my quote unquote big league dream, um, or, you know, of being in professional baseball, which of course, like any other kid that, that came up in the game, like that's all I ever wanted to do. But at the same time, I, I not only learned about the, the work ethic that it took, but I also understood that you kind of have to be adaptable when you're, when you're chasing a dream, you know? And, and for me, I didn't end up being even a collegiate baseball player. Uh, I was barely a varsity baseball player, but I still got to, to, to be in professional baseball. And it was just about being adaptable. My dream kind of changed along the way. I maybe never thought, you know, the last uh, few years of undergrad did I really think I was going to be in professional baseball, but I still ended up there. So, you know, for me, um, it's, it's a message that I, I hope can get across to a lot of kids that not only do you have to work for what you want, but you got to be adaptable and keep after it even when the uh, journey takes you in different directions. Tell us what it's like to be part of the Indians organization. Certainly. Uh, for, first off, you know I'm so grateful to the Cleveland Indians for, for bringing me on board and, and for giving me this opportunity. They're, they're a tremendous organization. Um, I have been on staff officially, I think, eight to ten weeks now at this point, um, and I couldn't be happier. Uh, the, the people here are tremendous. They're very forward-thinking. Um, when I first came in and interviewed, they, they basically, without me even knowing that this is kind of the, the motto that they live by, I started to realize through our conversations what drove the organization. Um, and then towards the end, I, I realized that they, they have an acronym, of course, Cleveland, C-L-E. And for them, that stands for uh, collaboration, learning, and then a commitment to excellence. And so through our conversations, I kind of you know picked up on these things, but I didn't know that was an actual motto for them. And then finally, those words were said ex explicitly towards the end of the 
uh, my time interviewing out here in Arizona. And I was like, man, this is, this is incredible. You know, and I could see it just, I could see these values being personified through all the actions uh, of the staff that I met with. So I was like, and this is, there's no better place to be. And, and luckily since I've been here, that has actually been true. Uh, it, it's been, it's been a lot of fun, a learning process, and I'm excited to be here. And so what does a typical week look like for you? What do you do on a daily day, day to day basis? Sure. So it's going to change throughout the year, but, but roughly the, the responsibilities will be about the same. So of course we had spring training, which I was here for uh, half of, which spring training, uh, if you talk to anybody, it's, it's kind of crazy. There's, there's a lot going on and each organization I've been with, it's, it's been roughly the same just as far as there's, there's so many players, you have 180 to 200 players and they're, we're all, they're trying to get them through games, practice lifts, you name it, trying to get it all done and, and do it all in one month. So there, there's a lot that goes into it. But right now, we're actually in extended spring training. And, and for those that don't really know the professional baseball landscape, it essentially, it, it's just like it sounds. It's spring training, but for an additional about two and a half months. And it's for any players that didn't necessarily make a full season affiliate right out of spring training. Uh, so we have about uh, roughly 50 to 60 players here that are in the extended camp. And then we have a, we have a group of uh, players that are rehabbing from injuries. Um, and, and as the Arizona Performance Coordinator, we're really my main responsibility right now is to be the rehab coordinator for on the strength and conditioning end. So for a day like for me, uh, begins usually probably a little before 6 a.m. arriving at the ballpark, getting things set up. We have two other strength coaches here that, that are tremendous coaches that work uh, predominantly with the extended group. So we work together to set, set up for the day. Players will start rolling in at about 6 a.m. They'll have breakfast. For rehab players, they'll, they'll start to do treatment. Uh, for, uh, for just the extended players, they'll go into the training room, get any kind of work they need done there. And then they'll come into prep, um, early in the morning before they go out for stretch. So they'll do individual routines to prep for the day. Uh, then they'll go through a team stretch. Um, and then they'll start baseball activities, uh, from the rehab standpoint, they're, they're all on various schedules, depending on, uh, when they need to be in the weight room and what days they need to lift. But essentially it goes very similarly. It, they'll come in, get breakfast, get treatment. Uh, then they'll, uh, they'll come out for a rehab stretch. So basically a rehab team stretch with me. If they throw that day, they'll throw, go through the throwing program, they'll condition, they'll lift, and, and that'll be it for them for the day. As far as the extended group, though, uh, as soon as their baseball activities end, uh, they'll either lift, depending on what, what position they are before the game. Uh, and that's if they do not play in that day's game. They'll have a game at t- about 10 o'clock each day, roughly, 10 or 10.30. And then if they're uh, somebody who... Uh, plays in that day's game and they're scheduled to lift. They will lift after that about one o'clock. So it's a packed morning for everybody, uh, coaches, staff, uh, and players. But but it's 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 uh, definitely a, a fun routine every single day to be on the be on the yard and, and be in the weight room. And so on average, how much time do you guys spend in the weight room? Uh, as far as a player goes, it, it varies. But um, I would say between coming in for prep for about twenty to thirty minutes every morning, uh, lift being about thirty minutes. They, they roughly will spend anywhere between a half hour and an hour. It just depends on the day. We, we generally strive for about two lifts a week on, on average. Just, I mean, that's some guys will come in three. Some guys will come in uh, two. It depends on position. If they're in the rehab group, the extended group, or if they're in season, but roughly yeah, the average would be two days. Uh, and, and they won't spend any more as far as their lift goes. They won't spend any more than about, 30 to 30 or 40 minutes in there at the most. I mean, because we're just a small piece of their entire baseball schedule. Um, we have a lot of different departments uh, on the performance side and, and strength and conditioning is just one piece of that. And then of course they have their baseball activities and we are, we are legitimately in season. So in season training uh, in, in season training is going to probably take a backseat to you generally, you know, every other uh, baseball activity. Um, so, so we, we try to get them in and get them out as efficiently and as uh, effectively as possible. So you guys lift two days a week. Now, what do those lifts look like? Is it one lower body, upper body? How, how do you guys break that up? Uh, for the most part, we, we try to just hammer total bodies, um, especially on a two-day-a-week split. It's going to be total body. And, and essentially, the, the best way to put it, I mean, I'll tell you what, if you're in strength, condition, strength and conditioning long enough, you'll realize that most people, uh, they skin the cat differently, but they still get the same main goals accomplished. And for us, we're no different than anybody else. We're focusing on fundamental movements and, and building strength. Uh, we, you know, we have those those fundamental movement patterns that we're trying to hammer, but at the same time, we're going to individualize for for guys based on their personal needs. And then also, you know, from my end, as as far as a uh, 
from the rehab standpoint, we just make modifications based on what the player is capable of doing if they if they have any uh, restrictions, upper body or lower body, while they deal with their injury. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's probably no different than most other places. We just try to fit it into the baseball schedule each day, and then over the course of the season, we try to to fit the stressors of training into their baseball schedule as well, so that they can play at their best night in and night out. Well, most of our audience is high school. Uh, baseball coaches. And so I'd like to go through a little bit of high school strength and conditioning for baseball. Now, this is probably the most asked about topic in high school sports that I've been around. So can you take us through what an outline for a periodization year would look like? Yeah, definitely. Now, I'll tell you what, the one of the hardest things I've had to do so far in, in my, my short career at this point is to try to build a high school strength and conditioning program from the ground up, especially from a programming standpoint, because there's a lot of variables involved uh, as far as class schedules, uh, multi-sport athletes, athletes that jump in and out of the program, uh, having optional points in the year. Um, so, I'll, so for me, periodization wasn't necessarily the biggest focal point per se. And the reason I say that is there's a lot of there's a lot of unloading as the year goes on. So there's a lot of times where the athletes actually aren't getting as much stress as you would probably need to worry about making sure that the the programming, the sets and reps and everything is right on point. Because, you know, for, from a periodization standpoint, we're trying to to manage stress. We're trying to develop certain qualities and make sure that we do so uh, correctly throughout a competitive year. It's not to say that we don't, you know, I didn't plan at all. I, had, I certainly had a program, but for me, it was more about building relative strength first, then taking that and just trying to develop that strength further. And then eventually try to transfer that to power. But, but it, it wasn't necessarily the, the sets and reps that were the overarching, uh, theme and what drove the program. It was more about layering progressions and regressions. So, so taking the program and at any point being able to, if, if an athlete gets transferred into your, your fourth period class six weeks into the semester, um, being able to take them, place them in within the program and then then layer a progression or regression for them so that they're able to complete the same movements as everybody else in the classroom so they don't feel ostracized, but at the same time, bring it back down to their level. So um, I, I'll say that having uh, an opportunity to go further, had I been there going into a second year or or uh, if I returned to the high school level, there's, there's so many things I've learned from that first year that that developmental, that first year for me was developmental. It was, it was block zero for almost everybody. And it was an entire year, whether you were a freshman or a senior, most were just learning to move and move well. Most were just trying to load through those proper movements um, and get as strong as possible in those, in those sound movement patterns and then develop strength with the, or excuse me, then develop us uh, more power through that. And then as the years would have gone by being able to then layer that program out and have different tiers for athletes who advance and progress and be able to to maybe do some more uh, actual advanced programming, if you will. You mentioned on Twitter a a little while back that you were going towards simplicity more. Is was this? Did this come out of that process? Absolutely, and and already from past experience, just working as a, as a high school baseball coach who trained the baseball team throughout college uh, while I was in college, you you learn that 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 these young athletes they're so adaptable, especially. Uh, especially from a, from a nervous system standpoint. So they have this great window for adaptation. And that's why like you could walk into, and I'm sure you remember from being possibly in, in high school and, and possibly having maybe not the best strength program or weightlifting classes, but, but dang, you know, either way you got stronger and it, it may have not been the safest. You may have not moved the best, but at the end of the day, you still got stronger. The same thing could be said uh, for, for most 14 to, to 18 year olds. They develop, especially early on when they first start training, they develop so quickly and they adapt they're so ripe for adaptation that really whatever you throw at them, they're going to progress. But, but the simplicity, the, so that's the simplicity of the programming standpoint. But then let's just take that time since we know they're going to adapt either way. They're going to get stronger. Let's take that time to, to kill as many birds as possible with one stone. And so let's, let's teach them how to move properly. And if we can do that, if they can move well on top of getting stronger, now we're really accomplishing more than, than just, you know, your average program. We're actually, doing more we're, we're basically teaching uh we're, we're having uh improving movement literacy and then getting them stronger throughout the process um so for me it was yeah let's keep it simple let's just progress and regress movements as needed and let's start them from the bottom build them up 
and then hopefully by the end of the first nine weeks, they're ready for a little bit more of an advanced programming. But really, even from a sets and reps standpoint, it can be pretty basic for a whole year, and they're still going to get uh, they're still going to see adaptation. So really, you're just trying to get the fundamental exercises down and then progress from there. Absolutely, yeah. It makes it sound so simple, and maybe it was too simplistic of a model. And like I said, if, you know, to, with an opportunity to go back to the high school level, maybe one day there might be some more advanced programming or things that I do. But at the same time, I saw, I saw success from from a movement standpoint and a strength standpoint in doing what we did. So we can only get better. I only hope that my programming can get better with the kids. But just knowing that we were able to develop movement and get stronger was was plenty uh, plenty for me. And so you mentioned earlier that you may have kids coming in and out of classes uh, throughout the year. So say you get a new kid in the new six weeks. And what is your process in dealing with what that player needs to work on versus what in the team setting? And so do you have some absolutes that everybody does and then you individualize from there? Or how does that work? Yeah, definitely. I think that's the best way to look at it. So kind of just bucketing everybody. So starting with a giant funnel almost, if, if you will, and bringing everybody into the program and knowing that no matter what, they're going to they're gonna need to learn my staple movements or our staple movements. And then taking those movements and, and as I carefully watch them, knowing what their individual needs are. But I'll tell you what, when, when you get a kid that's 14 years old, a lot of them need the same things. Uh, we, we see the same same common issues. Um, not to say that, that some don't, you know, there aren't uh, certain percentages that fall out of that. There's, there are plenty that do, but the majority need a lot of the same things. They need to learn to move better. They, they need core stability. Uh, they need to learn what, what proper posture is, not only just standing statically, but they need to know how to then take that posture when it is sufficient and then make it more dynamic. They need to learn how to move their body in space. Most of them have, have problems uh, or have difficulty differentiating between a squat and then a, a hip hinge and, and what the pelvis and the, the lumbopelvic region is doing, so what the, the lower back and the hips are doing. So if we could teach those things early on and then over the course of, uh, say, six weeks, so for me that was two cycles because we went in three-week cycles, at the end of six weeks I'd have a pretty good idea then if that individual needs something more specific than that. A uh, complete guess here, but most of the listeners don't have a strength and conditioning coach. Is there a way that you can try and convey this and just being a coach and being able to do this? Is it accomplishable? I think so, yeah. But but I think it's, it's more about at that point just stepping back and not trying to do too much. So if, if I was to, to take a, a high school coach and, and say, look, so you're, you're a high school baseball coach. You're trying to develop your own strength program. Let's make this as streamlined as possible. Okay. Understand that you probably either don't have a, you know, a, a strength training program in place right now at all, or it's probably something that you, you did the best you possibly could to come up with. But, you know, there's some areas that we can improve upon. So let's just go ahead and just lay the foundation. What movements do you feel confident in teaching? And what do you think you can confidently teach to them? Do you, if you feel comfortable teaching a squat, then that's a movement I think we need to hammer. If you feel confident teaching, a hinge, then we do that. If we can lunge, push, and pull, we have a pretty good program just right there. Start at the basics and then build up. If you can do those things, the, the sets and reps, all, all that is, is going to be very, uh, is going to have very marginal significance compared to the big building blocks that you can establish. So don't, don't try to think too, uh, too advanced or, or way out of the box. Just, just go with the meat and potatoes and that's just teach your kids how to move. Um, and, and you, you know, your way of doing it doesn't have to be the same way as the way, you know, I would do it or any other strength coach would do it, do it in the way that you feel comfortable and confident in that the kids can buy into, um, and do it with conviction. And as long as the kids are, are in a safe position and they're, they're not, uh, risking injury, um, and you have a safe, uh, a safe, steady progression for them, then they'll be just fine. And you, you will see development. You will see progress. Now let's talk about training with heavyweights versus training with lightweights and mini reps for forever. Uh, baseball was said, you don't need to get big. You lift heavyweights, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get big and bulky and whatnot. And now it's coming in, new research is talking about it being a power sport and it's very short bursts of very heavy movements. Now, what, what are your thoughts behind that? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly um, that that's exactly the stigma that I grew up in. So I, even when I was cut from the, the, the JV team my freshman year, like I said, and I went in and trained, I, I followed the same stigma and, and believed in just like everybody else that, that we can't get big and bulky or, or that we're going to get big and bulky if we lift. So 
got to go high reps and, and pitchers shouldn't squat and things like that. So obviously I think some, some better information has gotten out to most, most of the population by now. Still, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's vital to, to understand that, that baseball is a power sport. It's driven by power. So whether it's the actual speed of your swing and exit velocity that we're trying to achieve or whether it's how fast we're, we're throwing a baseball, um, the more force that we can put into the, uh, that we can, uh, put into the ground and then transfer through the rest of the body and then put out through whatever implement that we're using, whether it's a bat or a ball, um, the more likely we are to be able to actually exert power on those objects. So really to break it down, the stronger we are, the more potential we have to produce power. So building strength. And then ultimately, you know, there are a lot of factors that, that determine strength and power, but muscle mass, the, the, the bigger a muscle is, the more potential it also has to produce strength. And then ultimately that's the, the more potential to produce power. So not that we want bodybuilder size baseball players, but if we have nice, big, strong legs and we're able to transfer that effectively through the core, through the trunk and then out the hand, and, and we can do so safely and effectively, we're probably going to, to have better uh, performance from that standpoint. So uh, I think strength and conditioning is, is a major piece, especially at the younger ages. It's a, it's a major piece uh, of development that could certainly help a baseball player progress very quickly if they haven't done it before, if they're new to training um, and if done right can, can certainly aid in performance. From the past, pitchers weren't supposed to lift upper body. Now, I'm looking at pictures of Araldis Jetman and going, yeah, this dude throws 105 miles an hour, <laughs> and he is like hundreds on, on the bench with 100 dumbbells, and then his arms are just jacked. Now, is, is there a happy median there? You don't want to, I mean, does that even matter? Uh, upper body strength certainly matters. So you got to understand that, that the, the pecs or the chest, is it internally rotates the shoulder, okay? And as, as does the lat, which is the, the big muscle in the back. So those are your two essentially what we would call prime movers for the shoulder going into internal rotation. And that's throwing a baseball. So when the, when the arm is rotating in that direction, we're internally rotating. So, to, so to, to do that, you need to have strength in those muscles. At the same time, that's not where we're generating the majority of our strength um, and the majority of our power. That's coming from the lower half. So, well, absolutely, upper body strength is important. I think, uh, especially for the reduction of, of injuries, if we can try to prevent injuries by having a strong upper half, um, that's incredibly important. Um, at the same time, the lower body is just important. It's just as important. And so is the, so is the trunk and the core. So, uh, it really what it boils down to is developing the entire body. So, um, I like, you know, I like the, the quote that the shoulder starts at the feet. Uh, I wish I could tell you where that, that one specifically came from. And I could, uh, cite that source, but, but, you know, we got to start at the ground. We got to start with the lower half this from a force standpoint and a power standpoint standpoint that's where it all starts we need to be able to transfer it through the trunk and through the core um and then we need to be able to safely transfer that and and uh have it actually come out of the hand so that yeah of course the upper body can add to that um but it's more about being safe it's more about making sure um that we can decelerate the arm so upper body strength certainly is important everybody's going to do it a little bit differently there, there's certainly people in our profession that have I mean, there's those that do Olympic lifting. There's those that, that don't do Olympic, Olympic lifting, those that lift heavy, those that uh, throw weighted baseballs. Everybody's a little bit different. There's different ways to get the job accomplished. But at the end of the day, if you're developing the entire body, you're probably going to be in, in good shape. What does off-season lifts look like versus in-season lifts? Is there a difference in days? Is there a difference in volume? Is there a difference in weight? Uh, can you talk about the differences between the two? Yeah, so definitely speaking from a high school standpoint, um, the, the biggest thing for me when I was training, let's say, for example, the, the baseball team at the high school level, off-season lifts were able to actually add more volume and not necessarily, um, in a perfect world, not necessarily focus or, or worry about uh, competition. Now, the irony is that that's probably one of the few sports that you actually do have to worry about competition in the off-season as baseball's year-round. It's never-ending, especially down south in Florida. So they're, they're playing competitive travel ball through the summer, through the fall, um, and even into the winter a little bit before then they play their high school season in the spring. So it's year round. So you do have to worry about those things, but usually they end up mitigating themselves because players will miss lifts and, uh, miss, you know, a week at a time to go to a travel ball showcase and or a travel ball tournament. And that'll end up, uh, quote unquote, deloading them or unloading them at that point. 
but but realistically, like in a perfect world, if a kid actually took some time off, the offseason would be a great time to increase volume. Um, if he wants to try to put on size, it's probably the easiest time to do it. And not just from a volume standpoint, but also from kind of a demand standpoint. Because if they're playing six or seven games over the course of a week or four or five games over the course of a, of a weekend, they're probably not eating enough. If they're traveling with their parents to, and so I'm thinking about the summer, if they're traveling with their parents to a travel ball tournament, they're probably eating junk food and they're probably not eating enough of it. They're probably not hydrating well. Uh, then they're going to come back. They're going to come back and try to lift with with you in a team setting, or they're going to try to lift on their own, and they're going to be exhausted. So, so chances are it's going to be very tough during those periods to even put on some weight or put on some, some, some substantial size. But if we can get them to put the baseball down and actually focus on training, it'd be a great opportunity to to get bigger if they need to get bigger, or just to focus on strength development because that's the only demand um, that would be on them at that point. In season, though, just like in professional baseball, the same, I think, in my opinion, goes with any other sport. Uh, the most important thing is that you're ready to play um, and ready to compete at a high level. Uh, now, at the high school level, the way I, I envision it, it's still about development. And if we sit here and we try to say that we're only trying to maintain, uh, I think we're probably doing a disservice to our athletes because for most of them, they're playing two or three games a week at the most, maybe three at the most. So we have plenty of time to train. They're highly resilient. They're highly adaptable. There's no reason why we still can't develop. We may not test for it necessarily in season and, and always stick strict to percentages or however you want to go about it. And there may be times we have to take the foot off the gas pedal so that they can recover. If you're supposed to lift on a Saturday and Friday night they played you know, a seven-inning game that just took it out of them, then you know maybe we don't go hard on Saturday. Or if we have a big district week, uh, a big week of district opponents that really matters. Sure, maybe we back it off a little bit to make sure they're fresh when the games matter most. But at the end of the day, there's plenty of opportunities to still develop in season. And honestly, in all reality, that's probably the, the opportunity where you're going to have the most control over your players from the standpoint of you know where they're going to be. So you're, you're able to get them from the practice field to the weight room, and they really don't have very many excuses to miss other than school or extracurricular activities. Whereas in the summer, or during the offseason when it's optional and they're playing travel ball, it's very hard to make any athletes show up, especially if they have other things going on. So, like I said, the high school, especially when it comes to baseball, that level, it's very challenging. It's a lot more challenging than, than most would think. Well, and I think that most high school coaches would say that they don't have enough time to do it or just not enough time to do it right. What's your best advice for them regarding that? Yeah, two or three points to that end. So the first, I mean, if we're looking at it, uh, just pure scheduling. Uh, my first tip would be to take advantage of any rainouts that you have. So if you have a practice that's rained out, um, or if you have a game that's rained out and you're trying to find ways to fit lifts in, I know you can't schedule those in and you can't always plan for those, but, but like in Florida, you're guaranteed to get like one practice or game rained out per week. I mean, I don't have science behind that, but, but just from experience, I can tell you that you're going to have rainouts. So take those opportunities, unless you, you desperately need cage work and you have a covered cage, I mean, chances are you can go spend 30 to 45 minutes in the weight room and use that opportunity, use that time to, to accomplish that, as opposed to maybe letting them go and just go home at that point. Again, you know, keep it short. You want to take, uh, you want to take advantage of every opportunity to lift in season. But my second tip would just to, to keep it brief. It is in season training. Make it as efficient as, po- as possible. If it's a 20 to 30 minute lift, that's, that's great. Get it in hit your staple movements and get them out. But the biggest thing that really helped us in, in the past was with the programs that I've worked with at the high school level was scheduling uh, Saturday lifts and making that basically a staple day that no matter what we're going to lift on that day, because in Florida, we, we don't play Saturday games unless there's some kind of like makeup game, uh, which is very rare. So, so for us, we knew even if we played on Friday night, we were probably going to come in on Saturday to practice anyway, even if it was a light practice. So we were going to lift beforehand. So we'd have them come in at 9 or 10 a.m., bang out a lift, and then come out to practice hit BP or whatever they had for the day. But no matter what, then we always had one lift per week. If they were fresh, it was it was going to be a full all-out lift, and that would probably end up being probably our highest intensity day because we knew that they'd have the rest of Saturday, then Sunday off. And if we didn't play on Monday, they essentially had Monday off as well. They might practice, but no game. So a lot of days to recover. But if they were banged up from a Friday night game, let's say, then then we you know we met them where they were at. We just took the foot off the gas, but we still went through some movements. So those are some ways just to guarantee that you do get sessions in. And then ultimately, I think it's very important. It's it's more just a way of looking at it, but schedule it and look at it 
the, the weight room training as, as a part of practice as opposed to something that detracts from practice. So instead of looking at it as, well, the lift is going to take away from our time on the, on the yard, look at it as a piece of practice. And we just want to allot time to certain areas. So if your team is strong fundamentally on defense, then maybe we can allot some time from defense and we can shift it over to, to the weight room. And vice versa, if your team is very strong in the weight room, you had a great off season, they're in good shape right now, maybe we might need to shift some hours away from that. But just knowing that it's part of practice can help you divvy up the hours a little bit better as opposed to looking at it as something that we have to get done that's just going to take away from our practice time. And so during the season, whenever you were at DeLand, how much time did you guys spend in the weight room from, say, whenever you walked into the door to when you left? Mm, 25 minutes max. And and what we tried to do is, is have them come from the field. And that way they were, they were usually pretty warm. I mean, they went through a, pra- a whole practice or at least part of a practice if we did it in rotations or something. So they were going to come in hot. So we didn't need to spend any time necessarily on a warm up. And no matter what, we, we tried to keep it under 30 minutes. And, and in probably our most successful year, which was my, uh, my senior year of college, my fourth year of coaching at the land as, as a volunteer, we, we made a run to the final four and played the state semifinal game. And that year, I mean, our, our guys were so committed to the lifting and it was, the sessions were just so, efficient i mean they, they were never more than 25 minutes and it was uh it flowed really really well you say lift once maybe twice a week does that lift change every three weeks every week or does it just stay the same throughout the entire year ideally we were striving for two lifts a week with an option of maybe a third like recovery type day which could be done at the field or it could be done in the weight room it's kind of a versatile day um if we only got into you know two days that was fine if, you know, if we had just one day, that would definitely still be a higher load day. We want to make sure they still are, are loaded and going through the main movements so that when we came back to a normal lifting, we, they weren't crushed by soreness when they first get back into the weight room. From a cycling standpoint and in programming, it usually just went on a three to four week cycle. And it really, even when you change from cycle to cycle, tried to keep the movements relatively the same because as you, tr- as you change the stimulus, they're going to end up being sore. No matter what, even the athletes that are in the best shape, if you change a movement, even if you just change the stimulus a little bit, there's a good chance for some residual soreness. So uh, with baseball being the priority at the end of the day, we wanted to avoid that. You could, though. I mean, really, it's it's just about getting getting what you want accomplished, right? So even a coach, a high school coach that goes, man, I I don't know how to program these cycles. You could use the same lift all year and maybe just tell them to increase whether you go by percentages or by uh, RPE, so how hard they think they're exerting, you could tell them all to come in today. Hey, on today's lift, this or this week's lift, I want you working out a, on a six out of ten on a, on a difficulty scale, and then next week we're going to shoot for a seven out of ten, and then eight out of ten, and then we're going to unload. You know, I mean, it, it's that simple. You can keep the movements the same and never really have to uh, get fancy programming or really uh, go too extreme there. And you mentioned that you guys played uh, two to three times per week. How much time did you guys allow for recovery? So say you guys lifted on Monday. Do you have like a 48-hour rule, 24-hour rule before competition? It was more based around the schedule. So um, there was never like a, a firm like we can't lift the day before a game or we can't lift the day two days before the game. There was never that. I mean, it was more about just fitting, fitting it into that tight schedule. So if we played, shoot, if we played Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, we were probably going to lift at some point Monday maybe lift on Wednesday, depending on how they felt and what the rest of the coaching staff felt like needed to be accomplished in practice. If we needed to do more work on the field, then, yeah, strength and conditioning took a backseat. We didn't lift that day. And then we'd get it in on Saturday. Uh, you, you, could have, you could have rules and, and you could try to, to allow for space, but at that level, the schedule is going to change so much. You, you pull your hair, that, hair out trying to figure out each week when you're going to lift based around how many hours in between games, in between sessions, at least in my opinion. And even, like, for example, with football. So my football uh, team at Delane High School had what they call football class, where they're in with me five days a week. Now, when Coach Steve Allen was brought in uh, towards the end of my time at Delane, he took the guys outside two days a week to do stuff, and then I had them three days a week. But either way, regardless, in season, we were lifting on game day. Now, it wasn't a traditional uh, heavy squat day, or it wasn't probably what you would normally think of. We just got them moving. We got them moving fast. So trying to get them primed and ready to go. And at the same time, we were also doing some things just to try to get them loosened up. They'd been, you know, it was the last class of the day. They'd been sitting all day long wearing their football uniforms. They were excited for the game, kind of relaxing. But it was time to turn the switch on 
get them primed up, ready for the game, get them moving so they feel good. Then they could relax for another hour or so, have team dinner, and then go into the game fully recovered at that point. Well, that's really interesting. By the way, you are dispelling a ton of strength and conditioning myths today. <laughs> I, I, I think there's a lot of information out there that's just been around for a long time. But I'll tell you what, I mean, there's still things that, that I, I'm learning on a daily basis that I thought were you know, absolutes that, that aren't. Um, so I think the, the, the whole profession is evolving. And I'm, as much information as we can get out to, to high school coaches that don't have the resource of having a strength and conditioning coach full time, uh, the better. So you evaluate year to year or even week to week, month to month. But how do you evaluate if the plan that you're putting into place is working? Yeah, from a strength standpoint, I mean, you'll do testing, so you can do rep max testing. We, we didn't have any fancy equipment at Deland High School as far as, like, measuring bar speed or things like that. So, so we just use general rep max tests just to see if, if the athletes got stronger. I didn't use it for all sports and, and all or all teams and, and all of my classes, but I did for, for generally for the teams that I felt were ready for them. Because, like I said, if, if you're trying to just develop incrementally very, very slowly – with the athletes, of course, we want to slow cook them, and, and, and from that standpoint. But I mean, if, if you're trying to put a limit on how much an athlete can develop strength-wise when they're first learning to train, you're only doing them a disservice because they, they're a lot are going to progress very quickly, so fast that like, I mean, you may write this program that says, okay, by the end of nine weeks, they should gain five percent on their max, but they're going to put they're going to gain fifty percent on their max. So the last thing I'm worried about is is testing a max with with the majority of my athletes athletes but now if i have if i have a baseball group that i've had for a longer period of time and they've have a little bit of a higher training age and i know that or if i have my football class year round i get tests for those things i know they've been training even if it, it wasn't with me so as we're developing movement we can then test their max and see their strength in, in, improve steadily but for a lot of my classes even like they were a mix of athletes and non-athletes so i wasn't gonna i wasn't gonna test some in the class and not others especially with the, the limited amount of time we had uh, from a movement standpoint uh, I did take videos of a couple of my teams. Uh, again, the ones that I had the highest exposure with and knew that I'd have the most time to to really individualize their programs or or specialize their programs. I would video some some basic movements to see what they looked like. So, for instance, like the trunk trunk stability push up from the FMS. We just did a modified version of that. It essentially was a bottoms up push up and just saw what happened at their midsection at their core and and over time could reevaluate that if the program's working and then they should not only have stronger cores or, or trunks and have better trunk stability, but at the same time, they should also have better postural awareness and, and really know where their body and their joints are in space. So that should improve as well. So those are a couple ways just to measure those. You could also do some other performance testing. I mean, you could do a broad jump. You could do lateral jumps for baseball, med ball throws for distance, vertical jumps, whatever, whatever outcomes you're looking to achieve. So if you're trying to increase power and you know you're going to go through a power cycle, then, then maybe you measure for those things. Well, I'm a firm believer in that you measure what you treasure. What are some thoughts on uh, what you measure or just even building competition into the weight room? Are there some practical ways to do that? Sure. It depends on your circumstance, of course. Um, with a short amount of time, I know, let me take a step back. I know that, that many coaches build in, they, they build in competition almost to every, every lift or they do it once a week. And I think that's that's the one that I've heard that has been really successful with some other coaches is that, you know, Friday's a competition day or competition Thursday or, or whatever it is. And they give it a day and the, the kids know coming in that it's going to be a competition. I personally kept most of the training pretty much focused on the lifting itself, but then had periods throughout the year where we had competitions. And, and when I was working with baseball exclusively, this was the easiest to do um, because I had less uh, obligations after school other than, than just taking care of the baseball team. Uh, but we did like essentially an Omaha challenge with the baseball team. We just did a, a week, week or two week long, uh, event or events that the players competed. And it, honestly, it was, it was so much fun. It was probably the best memories I have at the high school level because, uh, the, to see the kids compete and they, they spend all fall and all off season working and then to, to then get into more of a, a competition atmosphere and then to do it, you know, we spent a whole off season saying get to JetBlue because JetBlue Park was, um, where the state semifinals and finals were held. Let's get to JetBlue. So we call it the JetBlue Challenge, and they compete against each other. And then that kind of manifests itself during the actual season. You you look back on those moments, and and in the toughest of times, those are the ones you think about. So um, there, I think there's a lot of different ways you could pack it. You could do it in the weight room. You could pick 
actual exercises and, and games to do, you know, whether it's uh, heavy carries and, and you, you put them into teams and have them race from one weight side of the weight room to the other with loaded uh, trap bars or with dumbbells or weight plates. Uh, you could do all sorts of different uh, planks and, and push-up competitions, uh, flexed arm hang, dead hang. You can do all those. You can also do stuff outside of the weight room, whether it's conditioning competitions or tug of war. Um, but like I said, what, what really was a lot of fun for us, all the players looked forward to it, was doing that JetBlue challenge. And we put them into teams and had had points awarded for all sorts of different things. And the winner got winners got a trophy and, and T-shirts and things like that, which was always fun. Yeah, I remember you guys putting that out. That was a lot of fun. It actually inspired uh, the school that I was at at the time, Union High School, to do a mule challenge. And so we took like a week. Uh, in the fall, and, and they got this big championship trophy belt, and man, that's really cool. I think that the Jet Blue Challenge is on YouTube as well. Yeah, if you YouTube it, I'm, there's a couple videos that'll come up, and then Vimeo as well. I have them, and if anybody like wants to see those directly or or wants what we did, I could. I think I have like uh, I have it all scripted out. I could I could send those over because that's a frequent question that I, I got when I was coaching. Uh, just baseball only was what we did. I have no problem sharing. It was so much fun. I'd love to see other schools you know, take that and run with it. Well, and, and did it get the kids excited like throughout the fall? I know that's a long time between August and whenever you start your season in the spring. Did that was that kind of like the the celebration at the end? In the yeah, fall? yeah, yeah. It was, oh, it was so much fun. I mean, and we we generally would like we would end with some of the same events that I knew that they liked. So over the over the years learning what they really enjoyed doing um, and kept those kind of towards the end of the competition. So dodgeball was always a big one. And then we would do like a, a strongman competition is what we called it. But I mean, it was, you know, throwing medicine balls, uh, trying to throw them backwards over a uh, field goal post, tire flips, uh, a lot of really creative stuff because we were doing it on the field. I mean, we were using buckets of baseball as, as weight, you know, and, and having them race and do competitions that way and towards the end especially when it was like a individual events they, they get all sorts of fired up so it was a great way to, to kind of cap off an entire fall of training we would train for like 12 weeks we'd give them a week or two off for um thanksgiving and then uh, we'd come back at the very start of december and, and we'd run that program and then send them off for christmas christmas break so um it was a great way to get them fired up for the season definitely and you hear coaches talk all the time about their kids not being able to compete but uh, if you make it a staple in your program that they're going to do things like that, I think that they understand that, and it's fun. Absolutely, yeah, you, and you get to see a side of the athletes that you may not see in the weight room, and it kind of breaks them out of their shell, and, and it, it's a little bit of a, you also get to see what some of the kids are made of, because sometimes it gets tough, and sometimes, you know, the ball doesn't fall the way they want, and even in that competition, you get to see how they're going to react as a competitor when they get knocked down, or when they don't compete as they expect, because they, they pretty well know how, how good they are, or how they're going to compete. On the, on the baseball field, but you you put them in a situation they've never been in before, and they're an ultra competitor, and they lose for the first time. You know, you get to see a lot about a kid, and they get to learn a lot of lessons that way as well. Definitely. So let's get into the advice section. What's the latest thing that you've learned that you're really excited about? Oh man, this, this entire job that I'm working right now, I think every day is a learning process for me because I never truly anticipated being somebody that was tasked with working with uh, athletes who are rehabbing. Recovering from injury, especially when it comes to baseball, uh, you know, so many long-term injuries um, and, and surgeries that result in long-term rehabilitation processes. That uh, every day is a learning process, and not only from the standpoint of like learning how to cater to these athletes in their training program, but also learning about what are the milestones in that program. So maybe the first time they throw again, the first time they work off the mound, the first time they're back in games. Those are really important in being able to, to, to have great programming that caters to that and, and know, knowing when those moments are coming up. And then also just the personal side, because it, it's a very hard psychological process for, for instance, a Tommy John rehab. It's, it's tough. They come in every day. They do very tedious work, especially very early on. For some of them, they can't even tie their shoes for the first six weeks because they're not allowed to use their arm to do that. Um, so being able to con connect with them, motivate them, and figure out what makes them tick when they don't have uh, baseball necessarily or baseball activities has, has been a challenge. And I'll, I'll leave you with, with uh, on this question on a, something that I never even thought about. So I knew how tedious the process was and how long it was, but one of the players, you know, had brought this to my attention, um, said for a lot of us, this is the first time that we've ever gone more than a couple weeks without throwing a baseball in our whole lives. 
And, you know, we, we go 10 to 12 weeks or even longer without throwing a baseball. So there's this, you know, baseball was their outlet or baseball was their refuge or, or it was their passion. And they, they can't throw a baseball for, for X amount of months. I mean, that's, that's a psychological toll that, that really, I didn't even think about coming in. So every day is a learning process for me. And, and I've really, I've really enjoyed that. Oh, that is interesting. I didn't think about that as well. It's something that you've done your entire life to just not be able to do it for several months at a time. That would be tough. Exactly. I mean, even think about, you know, when we quit playing baseball competitively, you know, I know for the first year or two, I kept thinking about making a comeback because I just missed it so much. So, you know, you know how that goes. So imagine, you know, knowing how you should be competing at a certain level and then you just can't even literally throw a baseball. It's, it's tough. But like I said, it's for me personally, it's a learning process and um, it's kind of what gets me up every single day and fires me up for the day. So what is one thing that you once thought was true? But that is no longer the case. You may have recently changed your mind about it. Uh, this isn't totally recent, but I think it's something that could help coaches out a lot because it's it's one of those areas that's like kind of on the fence that most coaches are on the fence about. Uh, you, you see kind of this pendulum going back and forth on conditioning for pitchers and whether or not they should be doing distance running or sprinting or or neither. But it's it's an area where, you know, even I fell into that, you know, that thought process because my whole career you know in, in high school was go run 10 poles or go run 12 poles and you just or go run two miles 15 minutes whatever it was and then it became well we're only going to sprint but now i mean there, there's so much value in aerobic training um in aerobic conditioning just from the even from the standpoint of the nervous system okay so this isn't to say that that you know aerobic training is the only way you should train for conditioning but understanding that sprints just like throwing just like lifting heavy they require the nervous system to be basically in a fight or flight mode, right? To, to, to respond at their best. So if you're always taxing the nervous system from that standpoint and we want to cue recovery, we always talk about recovery, right? Well, doing a, uh, a lower intensity at doing lower intensity exercise like aerobic training. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a 20 minute jog or poles. It could be tempo runs. It could be a recovery, uh, a low intensity circuit, like a recovery circuit. Doing those things can help the nervous system recover as well as maybe accomplish some other things as well. So just knowing that much like everything else we've talked about, you know, there might be a heavier weight that needs to be on uh, explosive work. But at the same time, we're still developing the whole athlete. We need to develop total fitness. Um, and just like the muscles of the upper body are important in training, as are the muscles of the lower body and, and, and core stability and posture. There are all these these hundreds of pieces that we need to put together and try to d develop the entire athlete. So that's just kind of a, a paradigm that, that, uh, over the last, you know, few years or longer, you know, been, been trying to piece together where that exactly fits. But I've seen so many coaches swing back and forth and say, no, we're only going to do sprints or, or, or we're just going to run poles because we need to be fit. So kind of just something to, to do on there. No, and you've written some great articles about that on your website. Uh, we've actually, the high school that I coach at, we put those in the circuits into place uh, this spring, and the pitchers absolutely loved it. But one other thing I wanted to comment on is it seems like we as baseball coaches and, and just as the baseball community in general sit on one side of the fence or other, and you're kind of taking that in between, well, this is good and this is good. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, I, th I think so. And it, it makes, you know, it, it probably sounds like, oh, well, pick a side, you know, have some conviction in something. But I mean, uh, the way I look at it is there's, so far, I've seen a lot of different ways to get the same goals accomplished. And maybe there is one optimum, optimal way, or maybe there's more optimal ways than others. But you have such highly specialized populations. You, know, you have these, these baseball players, no matter what level that they're at, they're so, they're so skill driven. They, they, they can swing and they can throw and they can do so, so effectively or relatively effectively compared to other athletes take a football player and try to have them throw a baseball player. And a lot of times it doesn't look great, but baseball players are so ingrained to do that. But then you have them try to squat even with body weight and it's a train wreck or you have them try to skip and they don't know where their arms should go. So it's, it's kind of funny. And I was the same way. I mean, as, as an athlete, like I was highly unathletic, but I could throw a baseball relatively well. So for me, it's, it's about just a total athletic development and sure. Maybe, you know, when we get to the highest levels of sport, we need this, this incredibly refined process as tailored to each individual characteristic of the athlete. And at that time, you, you might need to be on one side of the fence as opposed to the other because that's what that athlete needs to get 1% better over the course of a year. But to get most of the athletes that, that 
that you're going to see at the high school level or even at sometimes at the collegiate level to get them 10% better over a year or 15, 20% better general methods and just helping them become better athletes, help them get stronger and move better tend to be what helps them achieve that uh, more efficiently. So you're, you're wasting less time to try to get big chunks done. Well, I think a common theme today is individualization. And I, I really, really agree with that, but I also know that it is extremely hard. But you're saying that, that to, to be the great coach that we want to be, because most coaches that are listening to this want to get better, uh, it has to have some sort of an individualization component with everything. I think, I think so. And, and really, th- I think that's a process for me as a coach that I'm still trying to figure out. And that's my question to, to most strength coaches that I talk to, you know, all the ones that I look up to. My question is, is always, how do you individualize a system or how do you systemize individualization? Because it's not easy. That's something at the high school level with, with 300 athletes. I didn't, I'll be honest, I didn't do a great job my first year at Deland High School. There was not as much individualization as other schools and, and other coaches were able to do uh, in their programs. And that's in, just an area I needed to work on. So there's, there's definitely needs to be an individualization component. It's just about working that in so that it's still an efficient system and, and you're still getting everything accomplished. What are your favorite resources that have shaped your career that you can share with us that we can, you know, look up and, and dive into? Well, first off, like I've, you probably can't reach them as easily, but I've had some great mentors. Chris Dunaway, who was with the LA Dodgers while I was there, he's now the baseball strength coach and, and track and field strength coach um, at West Virginia University. Um, has taught me so much. He's a great developer of coaches and still somebody that I talk to on a frequent basis. And he's helped shaped, especially in professional baseball, how how I go about coaching. Andy Lyon, who was, uh, like I said, he was. Uh, I started coaching for him when I was 18 years old. I've lived on his couch. Um, he's taken me in um, and taught me so much about the game of baseball and about life. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful to, to Coach Lyon. So um, he's at Lake Howell High School right now. He's the head baseball coach there. Tremendously successful, um, and he's a great developer of people. So that's those two first and foremost have shaped my my coaching career and how I go about um, how I go about coaching from like a from a, an actual physical resources standpoint. I love to read, but I you know I probably don't read as much strength and conditioning books as as most people would think. I, I kind of keep a rotation. I like to kind of have a more worldly approach, just because I know it is more than just about the X's and O's of strength and conditioning, like that's important. And I want to help my athletes in that area, but I also want to make deeper connections and being able to teach them about life. And so I need to educate myself on more than just my own profession. I need to think outside of the box and learn more about life myself. So I keep a rotation going. I would say right now I'm reading a book that, that I absolutely love that I think, I think would be a great resource for coaches because it's not overly complex, but it's, it it goes over the fundamentals really, really well. And it's athletic movement skills by Clyde Brewer. And I'm still uh, kind of chipping away through it. It's, it's about a 300 to 400 page book. I'm about 200 pages in. And it's taken me a couple of months. I read about 10 pages a day. Uh, but it's basically just about building an athlete, especially youth and younger athletes from the ground up. So a uh, great resource there. And then the, the book Periodization by Tudor Bompa uh, is a book that I know that a lot of strength coaches have, have read just basically going over the basics of, of periodization and, and a couple of the different models for doing so. That, that helped a lot a few years back when I, when I read that. But really using, using the internet and social media to, to try to connect with other coaches. I, I love reaching out to other coaches and learning from them. So I would say just, just using networking to your advantage to try to learn from others I think is great. And then podcasts, uh, if, if you're someone who has a commute, there's plenty of great ones out there as well. So I, I probably have 100 books I can list off that would be great but um i think specifically for the baseball coach that athletics movement skills is 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 one that that a lot of people should definitely check out well ryan thank you so much for being on the show today and i want to send a personal thank you for uh everything that you put out on the internet and on twitter and on your website i know that it's shaped my career and i will forever be grateful for that uh, Jonathan, I, I really appreciate your kind words. I'm, I'm always glad to help. You know, my mission, no matter what level I'm at, is, is to help the high school baseball coach and the high school baseball athlete and really just high school athletes and coaches in general. Um, I enjoy what I do and, and, and taking the time to, to speak on that passion of mine with you today was, was an honor. And I, I really do appreciate you having me. And so I know there's some coaches that will want to get in touch. Is there somewhere online where we can uh, get in touch with you? Absolutely. So Twitter is probably the, the one big one that 
that I use the most. And so if you want to find me on Twitter, my handle is, is my, uh, it, it's at my first name, Ryan, R Y A N underscore fair F A E R. So it's at Ryan underscore fair. Um, most of my social media is, is, is that same, same handle. Um, I also have a website that I, I try to keep up with. It's just a personal blog. I, I try to write once a week, but it gets a little iffy sometimes, but that's my first and last name, Ryan fair blog.com. So it's Ryan fair blog.com. And then, um, my, my contact information is, is on that website. So if anybody wants to reach out further, you know, reach out to me via Twitter or, or my emails on the site, I, I'd, would gladly, you know, have phone conversations or email conversations to, to talk shop. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. If you'd like to get in touch with me or view the show notes, you can find all of that information on our website at aotcpodcast.com. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.